He's known famously around the world for saying, when on a good thing, don't stick to it, and for his famous baseball glove, bat and ball, apparatus that he used to explain molecular concepts, which are really complex at times, to countless students around the world, researchers, and anyone else that he was giving a, a talk to. And of course, we know this man as Professor Steve Powers. Steve Powers, the world herbicide resistance expert, and I'm delighted to be sitting here today with Emeritus Professor Steve Powers at his farm near Cojanup in southwestern Australia. G'day Steve, it's a glorious day here and how are you going? Yeah, good, thank you Craig. Uh, thanks for coming over today. Uh, here we are, it's late uh, autumn and uh, we've got a tinge of green around because we've had some rain and we're looking forward to uh, planting in about uh, three to four weeks from now in, in late April. Um, we've uh, We've got um, some subsoil moisture and um, this is very exciting because we're planting some faba beans uh, which is a new crop for, for this particular farm and so we're looking forward to getting a, a legume into the rotation along with the wheat, the barley and the canola. Yeah, uh, beautiful. It looks really nice coming in here at the moment. Obviously, as you say, the huge optimism with the planting season just around the corner. Um, but Steve, you know, I've known you for uh, amazingly over 30 years now, um, since I was an undergraduate at Roseworthy, and I met you first there back in the early 1990s, very early 1990s, I think it is. Um, and I suppose over that time, you know, we've become good friends, you know, you've been a great teacher and mentor to me, and I really appreciated that. And I'd really just see that your story is one that I know a lot of people will want to listen to and hear more about. Uh, you wrote your fantastic book, um, Porter Professor, Porter Prof, My Fortunate Career, and I'd really love if you would with us and uh, allow listeners to step through that um, as we talk this afternoon. Yeah, thank you, Craig. I appreciate that you're making the time and effort to, to, to interview me. So, uh, yeah, let it rip. Ask me whatever you like. Okay, so yeah, meeting all those years ago, I remember famously just uh, the major impression on me was learning about basic, you know, very complex relationships between uh, herbicides and plants or weeds and, and how that all worked. And you know, I won't go into all the gory details of some of the things we learned there, but it was just uh, a huge um, impact on me. And I know you've had that impact on people all around the world. But we can step way back, I guess, into... Uh, early early beginnings with the book um, called Porter Professor, Porter Prof, My Fortunate Career. And um, yeah, just tell us a little bit about, I suppose we start with your grandparents and um, and then with your parents and uh, being in Australia, how all that came and unfolded. Yes, Craig, well I, I did write a little book uh, coinciding with my retirement uh, because really, and I'm sure we'll discuss it, but my book is about the value of education and I understand the value of education because I didn't have it uh, and got it um, later in life. Uh, my grandparents, um, my grandmother was English and she married a Dutch man and they were in, uh, in Holland uh, before the Second World War. Uh, but um, before the, the Second World War, my grandmother... Uh, and my mother, who was born in Holland, returned to England and never went back to Holland because, of course, then a few years later was the outbreak of, um, of World War II and Holland was occupied by the Nazis. So my mother then was raised in, 
England uh, and endured the, as a young child, the, or as a child at any rate, the, the war years. Mm. Um, she left school when she was 15 and she uh, married um, shortly uh, after the war a, uh, a, an English man who, who had been in the Merchant Navy. He'd, he'd gone into the Merchant Navy at 16 and served on the ships that were shuttling things between the US and, uh, and Britain uh, during World War II, which itself was pretty hazardous stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they married um, and uh, children, or the first child, was, was, came along pretty quickly. And uh, my, um, my father at that time wanted to migrate to Australia. And so in 1949, my parents landed in Fremantle. Well, the ship land, uh, arrived in Fremantle. And then they continued around uh, to the east coast. So that's... Uh, that's so I, and, and I was born a year later. So I was born... Uh, less than a year after they arrived, so I was born in 1950, um, less than a year after they arrived in Australia. And I must say, Craig, I've always been very grateful that I was born in Australia. It's a great country and it's been great to me. Yeah, I know you say that in the book too, that just how fortunate to have been born in Australia and also had the opportunities that Australia's forwarded um, forwarded to you and obviously my fortunate career is testament to, to what that is and I, as we step through I'm sure that'll become clearer um, just how that's unfolded. Do you know why your father wanted to come to Australia? Like is that something you remember anything about? No I don't because I never got the opportunity to ask my father. Uh, the unfortunate uh, reality of what unfolded was that uh, we found we were on a living on a small farm uh, near Taree, or about uh, 40 kilometres from Taree, in a, real, in, in a in a small dairy farming valley, and um, my father, after a while, couldn't get work, and he he uh, went to Sydney. There were five very young children, and uh, he was working in in Sydney, uh, and he was supposed to come home on a particular weekend, and he never came home, and has never been heard of. Uh, since. Now, you can imagine how tough that was for my mother. She had five children aged eight, four, I was a four-year-old, three, two and one. So I uh, have only just the vaguest of memories of my father because I never saw him after I was um, four years of age. We don't we don't know what happened to my father. My mother raised a saying that uh, my father disappeared um, and that actually is a fairly accurate reflection. Um, I mean, the, the obvious conclusion to draw is that he uh, deserted, but he, he certainly never let my mother know before or after. And so our mother, I think, uh, credit to her that she uh, always referred that he, that he, uh, he disappeared, um, and that is what happened. He never came home, but he certainly... Uh, left my mother in very difficult circumstances with five young mm. children on her own on a small isolated dairy farm. Yeah, no, as I <clears throat> read that, I mean, you've told me that before and then when I read it in the book, you know, and just hear you talking about it now, it certainly brings a little tear to my eye, Steve, just just how hard and tough that must have been. But 
Um, this is what it's all about, just how you've taken every opportunity that's been afforded to you. You've, you've obviously created a lot of that yourself, but as you rightly point out, there is a bit of luck as you go along as well. You create your own and, yeah, it's just testament to you. Now, just tell us a little bit about that dairy farm. What was it like growing up on that dairy farm? I think you said around Taree. Yes, well, we, we were on this small <clears throat> farm and uh, my mother did have her own mother, so my grandmother, she'd come out from England uh, and she married a farmer just a little bit further up the valley. Now, it would be hard for you to imagine this, Craig, <laughs> uh, and certainly hard for your listeners to imagine, but my earliest memories of my grandparents, therefore my grandmother and my step-grandfather, were hand-milking. Um, so they were, that was just... Before they, obviously, my, my step-grandfather was not an early adopter, uh, <laughs> but they, they, I remember them hand-milking... Uh, and of course, you, you, two days, two times a day, three hundred and sixty-five days a year. And then I remember the Alpha Laval milking machines being installed, and what it just all seemed so like magic mm. uh, with these. Um, but I remember my my grandfather um, taking the milk uh, milk cans, putting them on a dray behind the horse, pulling them out to the to the road for to be picked up by. The truck. I remember walking with my grandfather behind the horse, a single furrow, handheld moldboard plough. It must be almost impossible, even for you, Craig, to imagine in this era of 600 horsepower tractors mm. and, and huge machinery. But um, uh, 1953, 54, 55 for a long time ago now. Yeah, really interesting. Certainly that that last part. I, it's hard to imagine. Um, you know, when I was growing up, I remember in South Australia, which is where I met you uh, all those years later at uni, but I remember we had a dairy cow at home and we, you know, Dad would hand milk. Um, I think her name was Effie or something like that, a jersey, and uh, she was beautiful, but one day Dad had to go do something else extremely early, so he said to my brother and I, can you milk Effie this morning? And we couldn't get a drop out of her so I know uh, what you're talking about and the um, amazing invention of a milking machine which one of my uncles is a dairy farmer in the mid-north up there of South Australia um, must have just been an absolute game changer just like a lot of technology that's come in agriculture as we you know move through the years. Yes that's right and uh, dairy farming um, has changed enormously uh, that uh, farm probably had 30 cows on it and uh, I've, I've never got over once visiting a, a farm in California with 15,000 dairy cows. <laughs> 15,000, my goodness. I've never heard far out. That's huge. There's some big ones in Australia, but that 15,000, that's incredible. Um, so you obviously went to school um, from the dairy farm and then tell us sort of what transpired during the school years up to... You know, uh, in your book, you say you're a high school dropout, but, you know, first primary school, what happened and what did you have to do to get to school, I suppose, from the farm? And then sort of just step us through those years through to dropping out of, out of high school. Well, I started a little one-teacher one school. In fact, the, the teacher, uh, Mr Kidd, didn't live too far away from our house. And again, your listeners, it um, be hard to imagine, I went to school for my first year of school on the horse um, with the teacher sitting in front of him wow. and his daughter behind. So uh, the next year I went to Johns River Primary School and that was walking to school probably about three kilometres each way. Yeah, walking to school, my 
my father sort of told me stories of that over the years of walking in front of picking up the bread at the gate and eating the contents out of the loaves of bread and having his mum tell him off. So would you have any similar stories like that, Steve? Oh, no, Craig, I've always been a good student, you can imagine. Uh, very well behaved. Uh, uh, my abiding memory was when I started at Johns River uh, Primary School uh, on the first day and uh, I was busting to go to the toilet, but I was too... Uh, intimidated by by this uh, again a one teacher the school and uh, then the teacher uh, called us out to his desk at the front myself and another student to explain something to him I I couldn't uh, hold on any longer and a gathering puddle appeared underneath the teacher's desk which of course after I sat down he put his feet in and then proceeded to check the kids and of course it was pretty evident who was was (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so no, from uh, little tears to my eye about your, about your father's disappearance to these um, laughable moments that you described throughout your fantastic book here, um, which I really enjoyed. And I mean, the area that you grew up in there, what was it sort of, was it, is it a high rainfall area? What was it like? You know, cold? Is it, you know, cold winters, dry summers or the opposite? Or uh, This is on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, so the actual uh, the farm and the valley in which we live, called uh, John's River Valley, is high rainfall. Uh, summer dominated, but rains a lot. Uh, beautiful, beautiful part of the world. Um, it was incredibly poor at the time, in the 1950s. Um, uh, mostly Irish uh, migrants who'd hacked these little dairy farms out of the wilderness. Um, but it is a physically very beautiful area. Uh, we were on the on the farm, of course, and uh, but um, with my father being disappeared, uh, my mother uh, decided that we would move into the town, which is called Taree. And so, when I was about nine, ten, uh, we moved into what's called a housing commission house, mm-hmm. um, government supplied fibro house in a, a suburban area, and. Um, and I started then, and as did some of my brothers, or my brothers and sisters, at the local primary school, Chatham Primary School, and and I finished my my primary school there, and then went into the high school, the Taree High School, to go to high school, and um, that was all fine. I, I uh, my mum, despite all the, the, the financial difficulties, she ensured that we went to school every day. With, neat and tidy and um, um, she sacrificed everything to ensure that her five children would go to school. Uh, But she herself had left school when she was 13 and she of course didn't have an understanding uh, of the importance of education, uh, certainly advanced education. And so uh, my older sister, she left school when she was 15 to... um, work in a local office and uh, it was implicit and uh, I, I left school too when I was 15 and um, as did my brothers and sisters that followed me. So in essence I was a high school dropout at age of 15. I went to Sydney, the big city yeah. uh, which I knew nothing about, um, uh, to start work and so I started work at the age of uh, 15 and it's hard I think for many listeners to imagine that nowadays uh, 
Um, but um, I, I left school at 15 and, and started work and thought that I would never be returning to education, which of course I then subsequently did later on. Yeah, no, very interesting story for sure. I have an 11-year-old, nearly 12-year-old daughter and it's just hard to imagine that uh, work, full-time work life would be just around the corner, although they grow up very quick, as we were discussing before we started this little interview. So tell us a little bit about the work that you did. I, you know, reading through your book, it seemed, you know, everything well and good when you started, but it became something that perhaps you didn't enjoy the whole time. And um, how did you then, why did you go back to school? Yeah, so when I, when I left um, Tyree at age 15, initially I was a, a, a clerk uh, in the government, uh, turned 16, then they, then they asked me to go to Tamworth, which is a, a major regional town in New South Wales, agricultural town, and I was there. Um, but I had a great uh, stroke of luck one day when I, so I was 17, and I saw in the main street of Tamworth the uh, mayor of Taree, who was a prominent agriculturalist as well as owning a, uh, what we'd call a stock feed mill in Taree and other places, and he offered me a, a ride back to Taree uh, to visit my family. And on that uh, return trip, he offered me a job to come and work for him in Taree. So at, uh, at 18 I, uh, years of age, I found myself back in Taree working in this stock feed uh, operation, um, which was producing stock feed for farmers. So the, uh, the dairy mill that they feed to farmers when they're effort to feed the dairy cows when they're milking the cows. And so my life has really always been in agriculture because uh, of that time as, as a child and then starting work at, um, uh, at, at 18 for him in Taree and then subsequently uh, uh, elsewhere in New South Wales. And just describe what was that like, the, you know, some of the sights and smells and sounds of working at that place? I did everything from being a labourer, uh, <laughs> unloading uh, uh, railway trucks, helping unload railway trucks, to stacking bags, to uh, a lot of it was 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 all bagged dairy meal at that time, mm. uh, to um, to to working in the office, and then uh, um, he 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 provided me great opportunity for just a kid, and asked me to go to Forbes where I was buying and selling loose and hay. And then also in Sydney, um, doing some buying and selling of grain, and it was great experience. I was from 18 to 20. Uh, a couple of years, I had I had significant responsibilities, uh, but then things changed, and I found myself still working for that company, but in a very uh, clerical role. And I realised then at that point that I, I I really had nothing, and I I was very unhappy, and I realised I needed to do something, but. Uh, to do what? Uh, when you've left school at 15, you don't have any options open to you, and that's when I really realised I was going to need to get some form of education if I was going to make anything of myself. But what do you do when you're a high school dropout? That, that was the question. So, you know, what, what happened to, you know, just wake up one morning and said, I'm going back to school, or was there some other circumstances that came into be to get you back to school? Well, I investigated all of the options, and uh, and the and the the most obvious option was to study 
school, that is three years of high school, at night time, because of course I had to work, because I didn't have any money and my mother couldn't help me. Uh, and that was really uh, impractical. It would have taken me 10 years or more. So I, I, I started examining every, every possibility and I became aware of a very small agricultural college called Tokal Agricultural College near a town called Maitland, which is near Newcastle, um, north of Sydney. And it used to take uh, boys, because it was only boys, uh, no females, uh, into a one-year certificate in agriculture. You needed the school certificate, which I didn't have because I left at 15. But I thought, I wonder whether they might let me in. So I wrote to and asked could I come and visit and meet the principal at Tokal Agricultural College. And he said yes. So I went to see him and explain my situation to him, and he said, yes, we'll admit you to this one-year certificate in agriculture. And I thought, well, it's my only option. It's this or nothing. So I decided in 1971 or 1970 that I would enrol and start in 1971 the one-year certificate in agriculture at Tokal Agricultural College. Wow, that's a great story that uh, yeah, you you know got off your backside, investigated the options and bold enough to make that approach to the principal and there you go. It just shows to show you, doesn't it, some, some putting some effort in and where that can lead you to, which we'll, we'll move forward through to now. So, Steve, what did you do after you finished there at Tokel? Uh, you did that one-year certificate and when you received that certificate, what happened next? Well, again, I, I yes, Craig, I did the one-year certificate in agriculture and I wanted to go on, but there were no opportunities uh, or no, no, no pathway of opportunities because I was a high school dropout. But I applied to um, Hawkesbury Agricultural College, which at that time was a... It's now called the University of Western Sydney, Hawkesbury. At that time was a College of Advanced Education and I applied to New England University... Uh, but I was admitted to, uh, to Hawkesbury and I uh, received a, a scholarship to go to Hawkesbury. So that sealed that, that I, I would go to Hawkesbury Ag College, which is a three-year uh, Bachelor of Science Agriculture. And so I went to Hawkesbury Agricultural College, which is on the outskirts of Sydney, um, uh, uh, near where floods are occurring um, from time to time around Richmond. And um, that was a very good uh, experience. I, I worked really hard at both Tokel and at Hawkesbury. Um, so I was a very good student. I was older, mature age student, and uh, I made the most of the opportunities uh, um, and, and worked quite hard. And I, as a result, I did really well. I was ducks at Tokel, and uh, I was the top student in plant science at 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 Hawkesbury. So then a natural movement on to um, further things beyond obviously Hawkesbury and as the book steps through you uh, you went on to do more education beyond that so yeah I think it's really interesting now to start hearing and um, I've yeah how did this set you up on the path to to where you've ultimately ended up today? Yes while I was at Hawkesbury I really decided I wanted to go on and do a PhD but again opportunities were really limited 
uh, and there wasn't a natural pathway from Hawkesbury because it was a College of Advanced Education. Uh, but I was very fortunate in um, applying for and being successful with a Rotary scholarship and I've been an admirer of and thankful to Rotary ever since that in 1974 I was um, successful with a Rotary scholarship. Um, I had to, of course, go through a competitive process and, and only one was offered for all of New South Wales outside of Sydney and I was lucky to be the person selected and that would help me uh, to go, I applied to go to Michigan State University in the United States to do a master's degree in crop science. So again, after quite a bit of effort to get accepted because I was uh, not uh, coming from a, a, a recognised university, I was finally accepted at Michigan State. I had the Rotary Scholarship and uh, I then went in uh, 1975 to Michigan State, first time on an aeroplane, <laughs> first time getting a passport, uh, first time seeing a whole world of which I knew nothing uh, outside of the small circles in which I'd moved to that point. Uh, but that was the making of me, uh, the opportunity to, to uh, live and experience a different culture, the opportunity to really think about all of the uh, different ways that one can lead life and that uh, the way that I had been doing it was not the only way and, uh, and the opportunity to study at an outstanding university uh, were just uh, wonderful opportunities and um, uh, I, I believe I, I tried to take every, uh, every advantage of the, of the, good, fortunate that I, the good fortune that I had in being able to, uh, to, to go to Michigan and study with the Rotary Fellowship. Yeah, no, it's really nice. And I'm looking at yeah, the photo in your, your book of, of uh, Michigan there, Michigan uh, State University in, in, in the fall, as they call it, or autumn, as we would say. And it looks really beautiful. And then on the old opposite page, um, a very fancy-looking student card there, Steve. So, yeah, listeners, if you're interested in seeing what Steve looked like back in those years, then... Um, yeah, get in touch uh, about the book. It's it's really nice. Um, obviously, you met some great people while you were over there. But what was the Master of um, Science about? What did you do in that while you were over there? Yeah, so I did uh, a Master of Crop Master's degree in Crop Science. So I had a lot of coursework, and my uh, and that was good, very uh, very appropriate. And uh, I had to do a research thesis as well. And that was on no-till seeding. So remembering that this is 1975, um, so I, I was doing field agronomic experiments on no-till seeding into acid soils. This is something you're familiar with, Craig, mm. that uh, here in Western Australia where we have very acid soils. So back in 1975, I really came to grips with, with no-till agriculture and I have been a a fan of and contributed to no-till agriculture ever since. So all in all, it was a, a great experience. It wasn't all work, of course. I, I had, um, at Hawkesbury, I'd started playing rugby and I played rugby league and I played rugby in Michigan, made very good friends, did a lot of travel whenever I could, but basically I was uh, trying to make the most of my studies. And then while you're in Michigan, um, I know in your book you write there's some wonderful developments about your, your dear mother. Obviously, 
huge respect for your mum. Um, just tell us about what happened there and, you know, that obviously led to you coming back to Australia at some point. Yes, my mum, who, who, who sacrificed <laughs> everything, my mother, who sacrificed everything to raise five children in poverty, uh, about the time that, uh, while I was in the US in 1975-76, all, all five children had, had grown up uh, and she uh, met a, 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 a plumber, a man whose, uh, whose wife had prematurely died uh, and um, they met and subsequently married while I was in the US. And so it was just fantastic that my mother, who had had such a tough life, uh, could enjoy the, the 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 last period of her life uh, happily uh, married, and could, with a caravan, uh, explore a little of Australia. And uh, so it was it was a great um, a great thing that we we were, my siblings and I were very happy about. Yeah, as are we reading about that as well, Steve, and you're telling us there. It's just wonderful to. To uh, to hear that she uh, she got to enjoy that, and I'm sure she's very proud of all her children as well. And then you returned to Australia, of course, and commenced your PhD in Canberra. And I believe Canberra is a pretty important place in your lifetime. There's something else significant as well as your PhD happened uh, whilst you were there. Yes, I decided uh, when I was in Michigan, I was thinking, of course, of doing a PhD and where to do it. And I had the opportunity to continue in Michigan. Uh, or to go elsewhere in the US. I did have that opportunity, but also had the opportunity to come back to Australia, to the Australian National University in Canberra, to work in a really, really good laboratory. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to return to Australia for my PhD, and very glad that I did. So I started in February 1977 uh, to do my PhD in the Research School of Biology at, at ANU, which turned out to be... Uh, a very enjoyable and productive three years doing my PhD. But the other great thing that you intimated that happened was that I moved into one of the, one of the residential colleges called Bergman College and one day I met a lovely young lady there and one thing led to another and uh, that blossomed into a relationship which uh, resulted in uh, Wendy and I marrying and having had a happy married life now for over 40 years. Yeah, fantastic. And I think you described that really well. I love the story about the, the skiing trip and um, meeting up with Wendy and, and uh, all those really nice bits. So, again, really nice uh, sentiments and great read within your book there, Steve. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your PhD? You know, what, was the, what did you do in the PhD? And, again, obviously this led further into the next chapters of your, your professional career. Yes, I think this will be interesting to you, Craig. I had done at Hawkesbury, at, at Tokal, at Hawkesbury and in Michigan, or basically it was crop science. And so by that time I was pretty well trained in crop science and agronomy, but I felt that in a PhD I needed to study uh, how plants grow uh, at the more fundamental basic research level. So I did my PhD in plant physiology and biochemistry. Well, that's easy to say but hard to do because mm. I had done a lot of agronomy and not much biochemistry, so I had to really, uh, again, work hard to, to get myself up to speed with physiology and biochemistry. But it all turned out fine and I did my PhD and made some really good discoveries in photosynthesis and, 
and influences of temperature stress and water stress and, and sunlight on photosynthesis and, uh, and it was great. So when, I, when my PhD finished, I wanted to continue in, in that area and I'd become aware of, aware of, I was in awe of a researcher in Stanford University in California, a Swedish-American called Ola Bjorkman, who just was a great scientist. And all I wanted to do, my dream was to be able to work with him because he was just so good. And uh, again, how to do that, uh, how to get the funds together to do that. And I was very fortunate in that I was awarded, I applied for and, and won the CSIRO Overseas Postdoctoral Fellowship. There was only one awarded for all of Australia in across all disciplines from computers to astronomy to, you know, whatever. And uh, luckily I was the successful candidate uh, and won that award, which took me and my new wife, Wendy, to Stanford University in California where I had a great two and a half years working with a great scientist, uh, Ola Bjorkman. And that dream that I had of working with him came to reality. We worked side by side, day in and day out in the lab. I learned a lot from him and uh, it was truly a great master and apprentice situation. Yeah, again, a beautiful photo of the, uh, the Stanford University uh, campus there, Steve, in your book and um, some really nice little photos, obviously great adventures up into those uh, Californian redwood forests and things like this, which is somewhere I would love to go. I have been to California or LA, but never been able to get up there. So did you get up there much? And just tell us a little bit about what that's like. And I even see a picture of a caravan in your book or a, a motor, motor caravan or something like that, which is that a mobile laboratory? Yes, uh, Ola Bjorkman had built a, a, a laboratory uh, capable of measuring plant photosynthesis inside a, a mobile home, a self-propelled caravan, if you like, and a beautifully sophisticated setup. And he and I took that deep into the redwood forest. And I lived in the redwood forest for close to a month. I didn't come out of the forest. Um, he used to return to to his home most nights, whereas I camped in the forest, and we measured photosynthesis of plants growing at the base, right at the base of the big redwood trees. So it was, a, it was a great experience and we got great data as well. Any scary stories while you're up there by yourself in the caravan? Yes, actually there were. The, 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 at that time we were in the Santa Cruz National, well, not far from there, in an area where at that time in 1980 there was a, a number of murders had occurred. Um, and uh, here I am sleeping in the forest in this small clearing beside this mobile lab and, uh, and I'm asleep. I used to think about whether this, whoever was doing these murders would turn up and then one night I, uh, I heard all these noises and I thought, uh-oh, what's going on here? But I'm happy to report that it wasn't uh, a murder, but it was done near the, just as bad, it was a skunk. <laughs> <laughs> a dirty old skunk. Oh, there you go. Well, actually, that's sort of almost the great segue into uh, the next area, into France. And we all know the, uh, well, no, not everyone will know listening to this, but 
what is it, Le Pepe Le Pure, the, uh, the cartoon skunk that used to be along and had the French accent because I know you next uh, made a decision to go off to France. So tell us a bit about your time in France and again with Wendy and the great experiences you had over there. Yes, I don't know the skunk that you're referring to, Craig, but then I'm used to serious reading rather than <laughs> comics like yourself. Uh, couldn't resist that, Craig. No, uh, no offence, man. Uh, um, yeah, having been uh, living in, there and in, in, in studying and working at, at Stanford University, I and Wendy, we wanted to live in Europe. Uh, I wanted to, both of us wanted to learn another language. And that opportunity presented when, uh, again, I was very fortunate, won a scholarship mm. uh, to work at CNRS, which is the equivalent of CSIRO, in suburban Paris. So um, uh, in 1982, we left California and went uh, uh, to France, um, which was a fantastic experience. And I recommend anyone that gets the opportunity to live overseas for a while to take advantage of it. It was just a a great experience, of course, a difficult at the start because you're trying to learn another language. Uh, I learned it unconventionally, Craig. I learned French unconventionally because the first weekend I was in France, I played rugby. Mm. And so I learned uh, uh, French from my rugby playing buddies and uh, I learned some colloquial French, as you might imagine. Yep. <laughs> uh, but it was a great experience I played. I enjoyed the work I was doing and I enjoyed living in France and I enjoyed uh, living in a different culture, a different language, which gives you a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And one thing about learning another language, whatever the language is, it also makes you more aware and appreciative of your own language and culture. That's another benefit which I didn't realise I would get, but it's helped me to realise uh, the richness and depth of the English language mm -hmm. and the... Uh, it certainly also led me to appreciate even further the um, fantastic culture that we have in Australia. Yeah, wonderful. So a little bit more about France, uh, what you actually were doing doing there in detail, and I know this led to your subsequent return then to Australia. Um, so the French time, including this living in the shadow, must have been amazing for that first, I think you said, month or so. Yes, got to live in a chateau that the... On, on the research station for a month, which was fantastic. Who wouldn't want to live in a chateau? Mm, mm. Uh, but during the time I was still working on photosynthesis, and what I realised, Craig, was that I was getting deeper and deeper into this research. And yet, if you recall, I said that when I set out, I wanted to understand more about plants, but my real interest was in crops. And so I was thinking about what uh, research that I should do what to, to change to go back into crops and I wanted and my wife Wendy we wanted to return to Australia and I wanted to be in a crop science research environment but what to do and during my time in California and in France I saw and became aware of the, some of the very first cases of weeds evolving resistance to herbicides this was cornfields maize fields and the use of the herbicide atrazine and the first cases of resistance. And I thought to myself, if this is occurring in the US and in Western Europe, it's going to occur in Australia. We use a lot of herbicides in Australia. We're adopting no-till agriculture. At that time, there were no reports of resistance in Australia. But I thought, 
this is something that's going to occur in Australia. To understand herbicide resistance, you've got to understand a fair bit about agronomy and you've got to understand about crops and, and you've got to understand about how plants work and how herbicides work with plants. So I thought perhaps this is the area for me. I know, Steve, this period of time was around um, 1982-83, I think, and uh, my my memory of 1983 was Ash Wednesday, so uh, I guess you probably returned to Australia um, not long after that had occurred or around that similar time, so that must have been quite a shock from the the chateaus and the the, the difference that uh, over in France. But you talk here about... Uh, you know, what are you going to return to do? Um, what, you know, herbicide resistance was something that was coming onto your radar. So, yeah, why on earth did you keep going down that path when perhaps no one was really worrying about it too much in Australia? Yes, you're right, uh, Craig. Um, Ash Wednesday was in March, wasn't it? Of yeah, February, ni- March, of February. 1983. Mm-hmm. And we returned to Australia in May of 1983. Yeah. I had applied for in France a Reserve Bank of Australia fellowship, which would, uh, which I was successful with, which would give me one year's salary. I could go anywhere in Australia, any university, um, but I could only. The fellowship was only for one year, so I I applied for the fellowship to work on resistance, to look for it in Australia, and I decided to go to the Waite Agricultural Research Institute of the University of Adelaide because the Waite Institute is a well known research centre for crop science, etc. So in May 83, I arrived at the Waite Research Centre with uh, a one-year salary, no lab, uh, and started looking for herbicide resistance. Mm. Uh, Eventually, um, I became aware of a farm near Ararat in Victoria where the herbicide paraquat, which is known as gramoxone or spray seed, had failed on barley grass. It took me the rest of my year to prove that, in fact, the weeds, the barley grass, was resistant to paraquat, which left, left me with about six weeks by the time I'd proven that on my one-year salary. <laughs> I wrote four uh, grant applications for my salary to continue to work on resistance, and the first three came back unsuccessful. The last one was I had three weeks to go on my fellowship from the Reserve Bank, the last one from the Wheat Research Council, which is the predecessor of the GRDC, was successful. And so the GRDC awarded me a grant in 1984 to work on herbicide resistance when there was just one or two fields in Australia with resistance. So I've been very grateful to GRDC, who then subsequently supported me for many years. Sure, and I know uh, during your time there you were also offered a tenure-track agronomy uh, lectureship or a lecture position. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I, I started working uh, on this GRDC-supported grant at, at the University of Adelaide Wade Institute, but then subsequently they offered me a lectureship in the agronomy department, and uh, that was great because then finally, at the age of 36, having started my education uh, when I was 21, I had a job, uh, and um, I tried to make the most of it, Craig. And that's where luck really came in, because there was very little herbicide resistance in Australia. I decided to work on it because I had a hunch that would become a major problem. 
And then, as you know, resistance exploded in Australia and became a major problem across southern Australia. And it was a, really a classic case of being in the right place at the right time with a skill set. And so I was able to build a significant research team as well as a teaching program uh, and uh, threw myself into tackling all aspects of herbicide resistance with great support from GADC and from farmers. I became friends with with many South Australian farmers, some of whom you would personally know, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a great time. Yeah, sure was. And again, in your book, I'm looking at this photo here of the the uh, spray cabinet that you proudly set up. Um, what year actually was that? Because it is still actually there when you return to Wake or back to you know, where Peter Batsalis works these days, uh, bases his program out of. So what year did that spray cabinet get built? If you're going to run a program on herbicide resistance, you've got to have a spray facility. Mm. And I built some early prototypes which were would never have passed any uh, health and safety standards, but we realised we were going to have to... Um, build a proper laboratory that would enable us to spray plants accurately, correctly, safely. And that, that was a real effort to build that. Um, I befriended the workshop man. Um, I drove him over Victoria to see, uh, see one that was in operation there. We took lots of photographs, came back, cobbled the money together, and he did a great job of building it. So, uh, uh, yes, that was built... Uh, around about 1987, and as you said, is still in use today in Adelaide, uh, used by uh, Chris Preston and Peter Basalis and their team, and still is a reliable piece of equipment all these years later. Yeah, absolutely fascinating, and people that you know, have submitted seeds off for resistance testing um, go through that very, very piece of apparatus, so great testament to all these years later. Um, that that's still running and interesting. Do you reckon it's the same belts running that, Steve? Oh, no, I think, uh, <laughs> I think Chris and Peter have had done a fair bit of maintenance on it, but it is, oh. it is the same machine and it, it, uh, it has um, produced a lot of great results from then onwards to now. So that was around 1987 when that apparatus was built and, as you said, you know, really serving even to this day. But um, early 1990s, um, children came along and that's about the time I started attending university and met you there thereafter. And I didn't realise at the time, all those guys up the back giving you such a hard time, that you were probably sleep-deprived as well. <laughs> well, any parent, uh, new parent knows about uh, those hard years of their life. Uh, every parent uh, goes through a period of uh, sleep deprivation, I think, and it coincides usually when you're trying to build your career. And both Wendy was trying to build her career, as well as being a mum. And I was trying to build mine. And, uh, well, Craig, I think uh, if you thought my uh, lectures were OK, as you've told me they were, then um, I don't know how I did it. Uh, somehow you, 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 all young, all parents, I think, know that it's a tough period. But um, I did have to teach it at, at Waite and Roseworthy. And you were one of the good students, of course, <laughs> attentive, of course. listening to classes, and uh, you've been a good boy ever since. Good. Thanks, Steve. No, it's been, it was really, really amazing when we first met you. Um, we knew you as Dr. Powell's in those days, um, early on, and they were really fond of some of those great lectures you used to give in, I don't know, Stephenson or Richardson Theatre, you remember those places yeah. out at Roseworthy, and, you know, one of the very early 
examples you gave us of uh, you know, talking about selection pressure um, when you're applying a herbicide, but to really drum this home to us. Back in those days, it was getting us to a few of us to line up out the front of the classroom and say, right, now I'm coming through with a sword, and if you get touched by the sword, then you're out. And then it left the shortest man in the room or girl uh, standing uh, as a clear example of how you do select uh, in a population. And then, of course, uh, the famous um, baseball bat and ball and glove um, is another one that you've just been able to explain complex sort of um, concepts to students, um, you know, industry people, anyone that you've ever come across um, often refers to how famous that is. So, yeah, tell us, let's, let's go back to the baseball bat and glove and tell us what was it all about and how on earth did you come up with that, Steve? Um, I thought you would have been trying to get some sleep. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. It's all about uh, trying to keep <clears throat> things simple. Um, giving lectures, uh, teaching, um, education in general, it can be also complex, can't it? Like so many things in life. And yet what you've got to do is try to simplify things without um, dumbing it down. Try to simplify things so that, uh, so that uh, you can maintain young men and women's interest sitting in a lecture room. And that's not always uh, uh, easy to do, is it, Craig? Yeah. Uh, uh, 19, 20-year-olds, lots of energy, young men and women. They're trying to talk to them about the intricacies of biochemistry uh, or, or some enzyme. And the way to do it, I, I decided, was to use simple props. So the baseball glove is very much like an enzyme, looks like. The baseball, uh, or the, you can do the same with a cricket bat, but a baseball glove looks like an enzyme. The substrate, which is the work that the uh, enzyme's going to do, looks like the, the, um, the ball, which fits into the glove. And the baseball bat is enzymes which can, or anything which can stop the... Uh, this process from occurring. So I found that using simple analogies like that helped. And the mere fact, Craig, that you can decades later remember that shows that I think in part that that was right. Uh, and um, so I've always, in lecturing to whatever audience, have tried to keep things simple and use uh, everyday examples um, to try to get across more complex things in, a, in an understandable way. Absolutely, and it's over 30 years ago, in fact, when I first experienced that. So, as you say, really drummed home, and I was only talking to some of my work colleagues overseas in Germany recently, and one of them relayed um, their memories of you doing that um, in, in, in some place in Germany, using the bat and ball and glove, uh, and just how it resonated with them as well, um, dodging out of the way for the ball as it got thrown around the room. But, as you say, that really sticks with everyone, and and, and goes through. But one other uh, little thing I'll just share with you about Steve, Dr. Powers, that he, he used to do, he used to put all these slides up on the, I suppose it was the overhead projector, those plastic sheets back in the day, and uh, it might have even been a slideshow, Steve, and he used to talk about not only those complex concepts, but how it really related to food production, and he used to show a lot of photos of, you know, fruit and veggie stands, you know, bread, all that sort of stuff, and there always used to be this one lady in the same lady in the, in every photo, and we wondered 
what on earth is going on here? Who's that lady? Because we didn't know your home situation, of course, at that time. And one of the naughty boys up the back one day put up his hand and said, uh, Dr Powers, who's that lady in, the, in every photo that you put up? And you turned around and you went, Who, which lady? Oh, that one, that's my wife, Wendy. <laughs> I'd forgotten that, Craig. <laughs> so that was very fond as well and we used to laugh. And he used to tell us too, Steve, that we could put uh, Glean on our cornflakes in the morning. I deny that. I would never have said such a thing. Uh, that's not true, by the way. <clears throat> Disclaimer. <laughs> no, it is actually. So obviously uh, it's a lot of time spent lecturing and teaching you know, people like myself, all these concepts that have stayed with us throughout our professional careers, Steve, and bringing up a young family. But what did you used to do in your spare time the rest of the workday? Oh, well, I, I've always played hockey and I'm still playing hockey. Uh, I've always loved rugby and I'm still watching rugby. Uh, but uh, I found, Craig, that uh, when I was playing hockey, I couldn't think about herbicide resistance. <laughs> so it is important to have non-work uh, things. Of course, I had, my, I had a young family, which um, uh, is, is the, uh, the greatest thing one can have. But uh, it is important to, have, to stay physically uh, fit as possible. And uh, in, my, in my way of doing that was, was playing hockey. And I'm fortunate that... At uh, 70 years of age, I'm still playing hockey and it, it's, a, it's a good release from any of those things. Uh, I was thinking about um, going on sabbatical, but I decided that um, I, I really wanted to know what one of the big chemical companies was like. So I, I arranged a sabbatical with uh, Syngenta. At that time, they'd never had anybody go on sabbatical with them, so it was a bit hard to organise, but... Uh, I, I had the good fortune then to go to England uh, at that time while well, still uh, Syngenta have their global herbicide and weeds and herbicide discovery program in, in England and I spent six months there or as a family we spent six months. That was a great opportunity because I got to see firsthand on a day-to-day -day basis how a company like that operates, the whole process of herbicide discovery and uh, that was invaluable to me as a university-based academic. Yeah, very interesting um, indeed for that, and I know that's something you certainly you know, uh, say to people, you know, any opportunity to go over and, and experience someone in someone else's shoes or how their business or their operations might run, if those opportunities come, you should grab them. Mm. And uh, obviously, you know, COVID's gotten in the way of a few plans recently uh, for some and whatnot, but as the world grows out of that again, I'm sure those opportunities will open up and um, would I be right in saying your advice would be people should take those when they presented? If offered a good thing, Craig, take it. Um, so from that time, when you returned back to Australia after that six months at Syngenta over in the UK, uh, what sort of played out for Steve Powers at that time? That was a pivotal time. So we're now talking the mid-1995 or so. And I made the jump from being uh, the leader of a research program and a university lecturer to being the director of a CRC. And that hit me like a ton of bricks with Australia-wide responsibility, heavy administrative responsibilities. I really struggled. Now, I'm not saying that uh, it's not a great opportunity, uh, but what I found, I learned a lot about myself, and uh, what I found was that what I was really interested in was research and, and development. Um, I wasn't um, uh, the best administrator. Um, I really wanted to be doing it. Uh, and so 
that period in which there was a lot of personal growth in, in being a, a leader of a large, uh, relatively large organisation, but I, I was uh, really convinced me that that I wanted to continue to make my mark. I had still lots of things I wanted to do in herbicide resistance research. There were many questions. And GRDC asked me to come to Western Australia. They effectively said, you have a big research team in Adelaide, but there's a big research problem in Western Australia with all the herbicide resistance problems in Western Australia. If you go to Western Australia, we will uh, look after you from a funding perspective. And so they were true to their word. Uh, I took them as being true to their word. And so Wendy and I decided that we would move in uh, 1998 from, uh, from South Australia to Western Australia, uh, where I started in January 98 to set up uh, the, what became the Australian Herbicide Resistance Initiative. And that enabled me to continue to maintain my focus on herbicide resistance research, crop science, interact with farmers, and uh, be focused on crop production and weed control and managing resistance issues. Yeah, it was very interesting to see you in Western Australia. Uh, when I graduated, obviously I'd had all that exposure and uh, with you uh, during my time at university. And when I graduated, I moved over to Western Australia. I was only coming over for a couple of years. I said to mum and dad, I'll be back in a couple, but I met my wife over here and the rest is history. But interesting, I sort of lost track of you a little bit and then you appeared again. And I recall um, when I was working actually for elders at the time as an agronomist and herbicide resistance was really ramping up. So this is in the uh, mid-90s, you know, awareness was continually growing. Um, you know, we'd do experiments out in the fields and at field walks, the growers would say, yeah, but you've sprayed that. And you'd say, yes, well, the weeds are still there. Um, and you say, well, that's exactly the point. They're no longer these herbicides effective to them back in those, those days. But I also remember, you may not remember this because you've given countless talks over the years, but I had a thing called the Texpo, which I set up out in a paddock at Westonia, actually, a big, big marquee. We had a stage everything like that, and I fronted up to ask if you would come out and be the, the guest speaker for it. And I remember at the time you said to me, yes, I'll come out, um, but can you get me uh, examples of chemical drums to line up across the front of the stage? And you came out, used those as the props again in a very paddock-orientated situation, um, no PowerPoint, none of that sort of you know digital things, and you held up a drum and said, look at this here, that, that letter on the drum means something, and from there on... I think the messages really started to resonate. But, of course, Ari just doing amazing work, and I know you'll talk about it in a little while, not just the research angle, but the huge investment also under your directorship to bring in communication and, and really increase that. So can you just step us through? Perhaps we can roll through. You know, It's not just about the research. Tell us a little bit about what Ari, you think, has achieved over those years. Um, and I think it's, what is it now? It'd be 2025, 25, easily. And, uh, but also importantly, just the efforts that have gone towards communication, because I know you saw that as a very important thing to put some investment into. Yes, Craig. <laughs> Research is not easy. Research is difficult to do, it takes a long time, you've got to be very careful about what you're doing, you've got to repeat things. And so very often uh, for researchers, uh, when you finally have got the research finished and you've written the paper, 
it's easy to think, well, that's it, it's up to somebody else. And what I learned, I think, the hard way is unless you get out and communicate and can re-communicate and say it again that uh, the research will not be adopted, uh, will not be taken notice of uh, unless, A, it's relevant, and, B, the, the individuals who are going to use that research are actually aware of it and told it more than once because all of us need to be told the same thing more than once before it sinks in. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think it's been the most difficult thing in my career, Craig, has been the extension of research, not the doing of research, which in itself is difficult. But think of, well, like, uh, you, you know the situation for yourself. You are time poor. You've got a family, you're doing research and, and then you're being asked to drive for maybe four or five hours to, uh, to deliver a, a presentation and then you're going to get in the car and drive back again. Mm. And it's, it's easy to not do those things. Mm. And uh, uh, I am, uh, have been affected by that like everybody else, but I have always been, I think, committed to and I think it's partly because I have such genuine respect and admiration for farmers. I've always been committed to doing what I could with communication. And yet, and so I've done a lot of, of what you described there, um, uh, presentations and, and, and field days and those sorts of things. But that's still only what one person can do, along with doing everything else in life. And I realised that uh, in Ari, where we had a lot of research, that we really needed professional communicators. And so um, I decided, along with GODC support and funding, that we would apportion a fair bit of the resource from GODC to communication. Now, that's not easy, Craig, for a researcher. It's hard to give up the hard-fought funds that you've mm -hmm. got through competitive <clears throat> buying for grants, getting knockbacks, et cetera, et cetera, to then use it but I decided that's what we should do. And then, of course, since then, the communication program in ARI has grown um, and uh, professional communicators, and that means we can do a good job of it. Yeah, I remember when you first uh, touted that and put it up, you said it certainly wasn't easy to apportion a fairly large amount compared to other research programs around the world <laughs> towards communication, but you'd have to say that's well and truly paying off and making a real difference out in the out in the paddocks. Yeah, I certainly hope so. Uh, I think that um, that it has been successful, and it's an ongoing process. You you can't just do it for one year, and then uh, you can have a surge, but then you need to maintain uh, maintain activity. But um, getting this research information and other information out uh, to uh, to farmers all across the nation and elsewhere. In the world, it's a formidable challenge, and and um, many people know that challenge. And um, but of course, we've been aided by by the electronic era, where things like Twitter and emails and and modern communication can help. Yeah, they sure do. But they can also swamp people with too much information. So, cut through simplicity, good communicators. Uh, there's obviously a, you know a real opportunity there for for good communication to cut through, Steve. Yeah, that's right, and we've been fortunate. Uh, the communication team, um, we have uh, Lisa Mayer, Jessica Strauss, 
Peter Newman and others, and uh, an individual like Peter Newman is very skilled at interacting with farmers, uh, understands uh, farmers well. Um, by his own admission, he's, he's not interested in doing the research. He, he's interested in learning, adult learning, and, uh, and so I think it has been effective and it's been money well spent. Yeah, well and truly. And, you know, testament to the fact a lot of things over the years with Ari in terms of basic science um, understanding, and that's continuing on, of course, um, post your retirement, uh, which is really great to see, but importantly also a lot of people would know about harvest weed seed control. So uh, perhaps you want to just step us through just a little bit about how did that come about? I know people may have heard the story before of your meetings with uh, a certain farmer not far up the road from where we're really sitting now, but... Um, yeah, just talk us through why do you think that was the, the logical next step on from telling people to mix and rotate, rotate chemistry, when on a good thing, don't stick to it. Um, harvest weed seed control, and should we stick to just doing that too? Yes, it's a great... <laughs> it's, harvest weed seed control is a great story. It started a long time ago. Uh, the people in South Australia, when we were both there, Craig, were doing it. We just didn't call it harvest weed seed mm. control. Uh, all of the various people started uh, funnelling windrows and burning and uh, things like that, then chaff carts, all of that is part of harvest weed seed control. But what really, um, the part I think that you're referring to, is again a farmer, uh, I was asked one day to speak in Cochinup, and as I jumped in the car for the four-hour drive to Cochinup, I thought, what am I doing driving down to Cochinup <laughs> to give a talk? Uh, and turn around, drive back to Perth. Um, and uh, I guess I'm feeling a bit regretful as I drove down. But that was a reunion of the original farmers that uh, were very involved in no-till, mm. uh, especially the Harrington brothers and others. And they were having a reunion. They asked me to talk to them about technology, crop science, herbicide resistance. Well, they had me talk for about four hours and I, uh, I uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. But as I was leaving, uh, Ray Harrington, a very uh, smart, good farmer from Darkin in Western Australia, he's, a, he's an excellent farmer but he's also an outstanding engineer. And uh, he uh, talked to me about a, a little uh, device that he had, had built. Uh, and I was very interested in that, and that started a collaboration between Ari and a friendship between Ray Harrington and myself, which resulted through the drive, energy and intelligence of um, Ray Harrington and my ability to, um, to secure grant funding from GRDC, etc. Uh, it was a good partnership and um, resulted in the development of what's known as the Harrington Seed Destructor and other... Uh, devices such as the Terminator and others which are really the same principle. It's something that I am personally very proud of, feel very satisfied about to see the development of harvest weed seed control and its adoption by Australian farmers and now internationally. It's a non-chemical way of helping to avoid, minimise these problems of resistance. It's not an answer in and of itself. It's part of a system. It's called diversity. It's called... Uh, mixing the forms of control up, it's called integrated management, um, and, and Australian farmers are adopting harvest weed seed control. As you intimate with your mm. question, it's not the end of the problem, but it's a way of 
helping to to have a sustainable system. Oh, Steve, uh, over the years you've obviously had a, a lot of great people working with you and there's a great team there still at ARI now, even after your retirement. And I know as an emeritus professor you're still around the around the traps there a little bit, but you've been very, very good at letting that, that uh, world-class team continue the work unhindered by yourself I think you've even said it that at times not to interfere too much but you're there as a as a guiding or, or advice if they should speak out do you just, just want to give us a little bit about you know what does the team mean to you and um, you know what do you think they're going to achieve as we go forward in yes Craig no person is an island uh, anyone I think that's had a uh, any degree of success knows that uh, that's achieved through um, people working together uh, and I have been fortunate that um, I've had lots of highly motivated, intelligent, good people work with me. Students such as yourself through PhD students, postdoctoral fellows, research technicians that have really been tremendous. And, uh, and you know many of these people and to single out uh, one from the others would be would be unfair of me and you don't want me to go through the full list but uh, many good people um, uh, have worked with me over the years and many of them are making great contributions um, and will continue to do so in Ari and elsewhere in the nation and elsewhere in the world. So many, many good people and uh, of course as one gets older and older one is in a leadership role but not actually doing things and uh, that's true for most people in most walks of life so you're only as good as the people around you and uh, that is true of course Craig as you know both in your professional life and in your personal life and I could never have realised the things that we have without both uh, excellent people working um, with me and uh, with having a wonderful wife, and Wendy, who uh, has been um, so insightful and intelligent and uh, supportive of, of me, which has enabled us to, to do what we've done. In your book, again, there's a great you know, list of, of students that, uh, and postdoctoral fellows that have worked with you and all around Australia, countries all around the world, making a real difference in agriculture. And I think that's real testament to your, your. As I said, you've been a teacher, mentor, great friend to me. You've always uh, been, you know, you're always a great friend to people as well. A lot of people know you. I don't think it'd be anybody that knows about herbicide resistance hasn't heard of you, Steve. And um, to that point too, recently in Perth, uh, GRDC research updates, uh, you had the uh, rare honour uh, awarded to be awarded the seed of gold by GRDC, and you line up against three other people, so you're only the fourth since the GRDC seat of gold was um, brought in and uh, it was a real proud moment and at that you actually gave a little synopsis of your career, a bit like this um, extended podcast we've done here, but um, yeah, what did that feel like to receive that and what comments about the GRDC seat of gold? Yes, thanks Craig. Um, to be honest, I didn't know there was a seat of gold <laughs> award until I... Uh, was advised of it um, and you're right that only three individuals 
have ever received the GRDC seat of gold. So I'm the fourth and the first Western Australian. So mm. a very distinct uh, honour. I am so grateful to GRDC. And when we say GRDC, what are we talking about? We're talking about the year-in, year-out contribution that Australian farmers make in the form of grain growers, in the form of a research levy that they uh, pay on the grain that they deliver. And that must also be noted is uh, a 35% or so um, matched uh, by, so uh, for every dollar there's 30 from growers, there's another 35, 40 cents from the government. And that is what drives grains research in Australia. Um, the the individuals who work for GADC, who serve on the farmers, who serve on the panels, such as the Western panel, the Southern panel, the Northern panel, are all great people that I'm so grateful to because they have consistently supported me personally and our teams uh, over over many years. So to be the the greatest recognition is peer recognition. Uh, the one the recognition that's most satisfying is peer recognition, and um, I think um, nearly everybody uh, uh, respects praise from their peers and um, or recognition from their peers, I should say. And so to be recognised by GADC with the Seed of Gold Award is a, a very satisfying thing, especially at this in the twilight of my career. Yeah, no lovely words there, and certainly GRDC, I think that system. As you say, with growers putting in so much to that, um, but getting great outcomes also is really the envy of the world across the world. The system that Australia has in place is uh, is really making a difference uh, for Australian grain growers. And you know, at the end of the day, we are producing food, right? Yes, that's right. It's, it's all about food production, and uh, and our Australian um, farmers are very good as. Um, as often pointed out, we, we, we farm in difficult circumstances. Uh, we have challenging environments that are getting more challenging due to climate change, and um, we need all the technology that we can get. We have managed to increase productivity in the Australian grain industry despite uh, climate change, and we've only done so because of good farmers, good research and development, and using every bit of technology that that uh, we can. So um, I, I agree with you that the, the GADC is a, is a noble institution that works well and in the interests of Australian grain growers and therefore the nation. And Steve, from right now you're, you're officially retired but uh, Emeritus Professor uh, at the University of Western Australia but um, I sort of know a few of the things you've been up to since you've retired, but you know what, what's retirement life like and what are you planning to do more of and what's the future hold? Yes, as you say, I'm retired now as a professor. Uh, I, I, um, I'm not working as hard as I used to, um, which is not to say that I'm giving up work. I'm not much good at golf. <laughs> I'm still playing hockey, uh, but I uh, want to, with my wife Wendy New do more travel once uh, coronavirus uh, dissipates. Uh, but I also am keeping up uh, my professional interests. So I'm probably spending about 50% uh, of my time at uh, my working day at UWA uh, doing um, the things that um, I'm interested in, but not any of the ones that I'm not interested in, like uh, I'm not doing any administration 
Well, I'm not going to any meetings and, of course, I'm not involved in the teaching anymore. Um, I've joined the scientific uh, advisory board of two start-up companies looking for new chemicals in agriculture, one in the US, one in France. Um, I'm, uh, I've got my interests in the, as uh, uh, owner of 340 hectares devoted to cropping near Cajunup, where I've uh, got the good fortune to interact with the Stone family, and uh, uh, that's where we're talking today as we're uh, thinking about planting uh, um, quite a big area for me, quite a big area to faba beans this in another month's time. So a range of activities. Um, family will always be first, but uh, uh, while I can, I'm going to keep up my professional interests and continue to uh, be involved in Australian agriculture. Uh, terrific and great to hear. We don't want to see you disappear off the radar and just uh, be travelling around in a caravan all the time, even though you've got some experience in the Californian redwoods. Um, it's really great to know that you'll still be around, certainly let the, uh, you know, the, the next generations come through and um, you know, do their bit for Australian agriculture and world agriculture. But you know, as a final uh, point, I suppose, Steve, you know, what piece of ad- one piece of advice, if you can think of one, uh, just one, would you give to a budding, you know, or say a graduate out there that's coming through the agricultural system or even a bit further back, even a high school student that might be thinking, hmm, where am I going to go with my career? Yes, uh, well, that's right, Craig, isn't it? I mean, if we think back to, to when I was 16 or 17, a high school dropout, uh, it would be easy to think that I would never achieve anything. So in answer, I would say to any young person, uh, dream big, uh, be realistic of course, um, but um, in a great country like Australia where one is not discriminated against on the basis of wealth or accent, uh, you can achieve what you want to achieve through hard work, perseverance and luck. You make your own luck to a certain extent. So dream big, be realistic, but dream big and give it your best shot. I have found, I think I'm living testimony to the transformative power of education. I think I'm living testimony to that in this country, this egalitarian country, if you give it a go, people will pat you on the back. Great advice. Lovely way to finish, I think, Steve. And I just want to say such a a huge thank you to you for taking some time out of the with your visit here to the farm this afternoon. I mean, it's beautiful weather outside. We're so fortunate, as you say, to live in this country uh, with the opportunities that if you're willing to take them and, and create them too in some some degree, that Australia will pay you back. So, Professor Steve Powers, thanks very much. I hope uh, everyone, I'm sure they will, will really have enjoyed listening to your story, but importantly, the uh, huge impact you've had on world agriculture. Thank you, Craig. I, I really want to thank you you that's made the time it's your idea to to interview me today and uh, um, you are also a fabulous young man doing a great job in agriculture as many and all who know you would attest to so thank you Craig thanks Steve